Welcome to Asian Oscar Bait, the podcast where we give Hollywood hashtag no excuses to not make films with Asian leading roles. Every week, we're going to tell you a story about a real-life Asian from history, who we think should be at the center of a movie that doesn't star Scarlett Johansson, Emma Stone, or Tilda Swinton. But before we get to the storytelling, let's take a moment to reflect on Asians in the media. As Donald Trump's rampant hate-mongering becomes the law of our land, there has never been a more pressing time for diverse and inclusive storytelling in mainstream media. This is a simple truth that is not up for debate. What remains more complex, however, is the issue of positivity that is continually and understandably linked to discussions about representation. There is still that tendency among critics and audiences alike to demand affirmative characterizations from artists whose works revolve around people of color. At a time when Black, Latino, Muslim, and Asian people in this country are increasingly susceptible to emotional, verbal, and physical abuse from those who surround them, the desire for our films and TV shows to offer favorable representations of minorities is certainly understandable. That being said, I think it's safe to say that neither Melissa nor I go to the movies or turn on the TV to directly seek out role models. And it can be quietly frustrating when viewers who, for example, have no problem with antiheroes like Tony Soprano, Don Draper, or Walter White, take issue with even the slightest hint of moral ambiguity within a character of color because they fear it reflects badly on all people of a certain color or ethnicity. Actually, when's the last time we even had a complex Asian antihero to debate over? I really can't remember one. This pressure for good representations is nothing new, especially when it comes to Asians who so rarely appear in major American-made movies. When they do, they're often made to bend to the demands that they should be model Asians, which is a burden no ethnic group should have to shoulder. This reminds me that before he took over the Fast and Furious and Star Trek franchises, the director Justin Lin made this really audacious indie drama called Better Luck Tomorrow, which was the toast of Sundance way back in 2002 and was the first acquisition for MTV Films. I mean, people seldom talk about it today, but it remains a really admirably bold undertaking. It's a film that puts Asian teenagers front and center and it depicts them as hard partying, ethically muddy, yet undeniably three-dimensional human beings. They're overachievers, but they're also nobody's heroes, and they shouldn't have to be. And yet, at Sundance in 2002, an irate white audience member confronted Lin and his fellow filmmakers during a post-screening Q&A, and he asked them, uh, with like maximum self-righteousness, Why, with the talent up there and yourself, would you make a film as so empty and amoral for Asian Americans? Upon that, Roger Ebert jumped up and, bless him, said the following. Feels like he has the right to tell us how we are supposed to exist in media. And then Roger Ebert gets up. What I find very offensive and condescending about your statement is nobody would say to a bunch of white filmmakers, how could you do this to your people? Have 
Warner Brothers is currently gearing up for a film adaptation of Crazy Rich Asians, the 2013 bestseller from writer Kevin Kwan that dramatizes the opulent exploits of wealthy contemporary Singaporeans. This past week, Entertainment Weekly graciously devoted a week to looking at Asian representation, as opposed to, you know, discussing it with regularity. The article focuses on what the filmmakers behind this upcoming adaptation can learn from Suicide Squad, which was a shit movie with a diverse cast that made tons of money, as well as Better Luck Tomorrow, which made a splash, but whose cast has barely been heard from since its debut, aside from John Cho. It's interesting, though, that Better Luck Tomorrow was undeniably an indie movie, while Crazy Rich Asians will have the efforts and money of an important studio behind it. I wonder if the filmmakers involved will be encouraged to sand down the more outrageous edges of these characters that made them so memorable to readers in the first place, or even be forced to make them more readily sympathetic to the type of mass audience that Warner Brothers likes to court. In this vein, I think it's actually pretty interesting to talk about Dylan Yang, who is the 16-year-old Asian-American boy from Wisconsin who has been convicted of homicide and faces a 13-year sentence. Um, He was tried as an adult for um, murdering one of his classmates, although I think the story... Well, the story goes that he... The victim of this crime was going to the offender's house with a BB gun, I think, to harm one of his friends who was at the house. And Yang uh, went outside and saw the gun, but I don't think he realized it was a BB gun. And in... Allegedly in self-defense, he stabbed the assailant with a knife in the back twice, killing him. So right now he's seeking an appeal, um, but it's just in a really interesting sort of, I guess, interesting moment right now for this to sort of occur because it's really just a total rebuke to that sort of model Asian stereotype that kind of curtails people's views of Asians in general. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's a really like murky case, although I I mean, I believe he was acting in self-defense. Yeah, it's really interesting. And um, I think in the past year, we have had this sort of model minority image of Asians shattered, I think, mm-hmm. in uh, the press, especially with people like Daniel Holtzclaw being arrested and Peter Liang, who um, was a cop who shot an unarmed unarmed black man and was sent to prison and um there were a lot of protests about this mainly from asian people sort of being like why are the white officers not arrested but our asian officer Mm -hmm. is which is you know incredibly problematic but um it's really interesting that this is sort of coming to light nowadays and people are talking about it though they're not talking about it nearly as much i was just thinking to myself the other day as somebody who's really interested in murder mysteries and in true crime, we don't really have that sort of like iconic um, Asian crime, if that doesn't sound too horrible. Yeah, I would say that's about right. I mean, I don't, you mean just like in real life? In, yeah, but like there's no like, I feel like, for example, like the iconic like white person crime maybe is like John Benet Ramsey, if that makes any sense. Or, um, Ted Bundy. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, we don't really hear a peep about any, um, there aren't really any prominent Asian American crimes, except for hate crimes. Yeah. I mean, we're about to focus on Yes, this, like, segues very neatly into this episode. But before we get to that, yeah, I would say, I think it's, I think just to solidify the point once and for all that, I think, I think we were, said this in our last episode, but 
it's worth repeating that the best way to normalize minorities or to normalize people's views of minorities is to show them as human beings. I mean, I think in the 1940s, there were a lot of liberal directors who made these films about, you know, why anti-Semitism was wrong and they, you know, like Gentleman's Agreement and Crossfire. So these films always revolved around crimes against Jewish soldiers as if to say that it's a shame that a soldier in particular was the victim of a crime as opposed to, you know, a Jewish person, a regular Jewish person was the victim of a crime and this should be a tragedy as well. So I think it's about, I think there should be an emphasis on creating diverse portraits of Asian people that are, you know, aren't necessarily aiming for heroism and are willing to settle on the lives of everyday Asian people that aren't heroic or that, you know, have a bit of a ambiguity to them. In 1997, fashion powerhouse Johnny Versace, the Italian icon who addressed everyone from Madonna to Princess Diana, was gunned down in front of his gated mansion in Miami's South Beach neighborhood during the early morning hours of July 17th. Versace's execution rocked the fashion world and shocked those even outside its glitzy orbit. His murder would have certainly made headlines no matter the circumstances, but public attention was no doubt exacerbated by its unusual connection to a series of grisly crimes that had already become high-profile fodder for the papers and nightly news. The perpetrator of these crimes was a most unusual suspect, a handsome 27-year-old, half-Italian, half-Filipino former altar boy who had already killed at least four men and scored himself a place on the FBI's 10 most wanted list by the time he took Versace's life. His name was Andrew Philip Cunanan, and this is his story. Before he became one of America's most notorious serial killers, Andrew Philip Cunanan spent most of his early to mid-twenties bouncing around gay male enclaves all across the United States. Cunanan worked mostly as a rent boy, but he also possessed a keen eye for scoping out middle-aged and even elderly sugar daddies with deep pockets and burning desires to nurture and reward their much younger escorts. These men would provide Cunanan, then going under the alias Andrew De Silva, with luxury cars, plush residencies, monthly allowances, and jet-setting getaways to popular European cities. Cunanan claimed to hail from a long line of Sephardic Jews and frequently detailed a cushy and highly intellectual upbringing, one in which he lounged around by the pool and read books and dined at first-class restaurants with his family. During one of his European getaways to the French village of Beaulieu with a 60-something San Diego businessman named Norman Blatchford, Cunanan plopped down 20 bucks for a minuscule jar of jam. When later asked about the extravagance by an acquaintance, Cunanan commented, I never look at any price. My family never looked at any price. This, however, cannot be further from the truth. Cunanan was born in National City, California in August of 1969 to the Filipino-American Modesto Cunanan and his wife, Marianne. In his outlandishly fabricated life story, Cunanan would recast his father and mother as, respectively, a bisexual Filipino general who was chummy with Ferdinand Marcos, and a spoiled Jewish-American princess who went on spa dates with Debbie Harry and endured a loveless marriage for the sake of her children's financial security. 
In actuality, Mary Ann was a devoutly Catholic Italian-American housewife, and Modesto was a sailor in the U.S. Navy who was fighting in Vietnam at the time of Andrew's birth. Their marriage was an unhappy one, but they kept faith that their beautiful and talented youngest son might mend the cracks in their family's foundation. At the age of 12, Cunanan was enrolled by his father in the Bishop School, a private institution in the La Jolla neighborhood of San Diego. He developed a genius level IQ of 147 and developed a reputation as a clever and chatty young man. But Cunanan was also a serial liar prone to creating far-fetched stories about his personal life that he would recount to anyone who would listen. And as he grew older, he became increasingly desirous of a life outside of his conventional middle-class San Diego existence, a life that he became intent on achieving at seemingly any cost. When Cunanan graduated from the Bishop School in 1987, he selected a short 18th century French quote from Louis XV to accompany his yearbook portrait. Next to an attractive black and white photo of Cunanan in a suit and tie is the phrase, Après moi le déluge. The translation? After me comes the flood. Upon graduation, Cunanan put in a couple of years at the University of California, majoring in American history. Meanwhile, his family was quickly unraveling. In 1988, Cunanan's father, by then a stockbroker under suspicion for embezzling upwards of $100,000, abandoned his wife and children in order to escape arrest. But his father's absence only raised tensions in the household. During an argument in their home not long after, Cunanan pushed his mother so forcefully against a wall that he dislocated her shoulder. Cunanan soon made his own escape dropping out of college and flocking to the Bay Area and its exciting LGBT scene. He settled into San Francisco's famous Castro District, where he quickly made friends and became a regular in gay bars and dance clubs. He made ends meet by working as a gay gigolo, or, when demand ran dry, dealing and then using drugs, from pharmaceuticals to heroin, within those same bars and clubs. He would zigzag between San Francisco and San Diego to interact with shady suppliers or crash at the apartments of friends when his luck ran out. In San Diego, he acquired a wealthy patroness, Elizabeth Cote, who had known Cunanan since he was a teenager. She made him the godfather of her young daughter and supported his expensive hobby of constructing dollhouses. Cunanan, in turn, clung to the sophistication that his patroness and her family effortlessly exemplified in which he longed to exude himself. But knowing that such elitism was very nearly unattainable for someone in his shoes, Cunanan instead did the next best thing. He faked it. He became a faux art scholar, able to name the painter of any given work of art, the year it had been created, and the people and organizations whose hands it had passed through. He would ramble on about the quality of an $800 Japanese lunch and wonder aloud which European hotspot he should jet to for dinner. He would brag about all of the celebrities he crossed paths with, from Elizabeth Hurley to Lisa Kudrow, the latter of whom he was obsessed with, telling multiple friends that the two of them had just lunched together the day prior. In spite of these often shameless lies, there was one famous figure that Cunanan reportedly did come into contact with, and that was Johnny Versace. According to an eyewitness, the two crossed paths in 1990 at Colossus, a San Francisco nightclub, while Versace was in town for a collaboration with the San Francisco Opera. I know you, Versace allegedly said, motioning towards Cunanan, then just 21. Lago di Como, no? Referring to Lake Como, where he owned a home. 
Thank you for remembering, Signor Versace, Cunanan replied. And that was it. Although Cunanan continued to boast about the run-in, claiming that he had replied, If you're Johnny Versace, then I'm Coco Chanel. There is no evidence that Cunanan had ever set foot in Lake Como, much less come into prior contact with Versace, who might have just been attempting to chat up the personable, good-looking young man in his company. Either way, it's a faded moment that stands as both a revealing indicator of just how effectively Cunanan had managed to wedge himself into the upper echelons of the gay glitterati, and an eerie foreshadowing of how disastrously things would turn out when he realized his place there was far from authentic. Throughout his adulthood, Cunanan often brushed up against the limits of a highly body-conscious gay culture where the likes of an untoned, ordinarily attractive Asian man weren't always welcome. In response to this, Cunanan became a master shapeshifter, changing his appearance in ways that both conceal and reveal his ethnicity. Go to Cunanan's Wikipedia page. On there, you can find a grid of six photos from Cunanan's FBI file that show him at various stages in his life. To look at all of these photos together is shocking because it truly feels as if you're looking at six different people. In one photo, he's a spiky-haired, frat-house-ready brosif. In another, he's a bespectacled, clean-cut prep. In several of these images, he successfully passes for Caucasian. Eric Greenman, one of Cunanan's gay San Diego friends and a former roommate, claimed that Cunanan never brought home a single man in the 10 months they lived together in the early 90s, which, as he puts it, was virtually unheard of. As Greenman explained, Andrew was not one to get dates. He had to flash money. A good-looking guy wouldn't look at him. Greenman, like many others who spoke of Cunanan both before and after Versace's murder, confirmed that Cunanan was heavily into sadomasochism and often crossed the boundaries of safe and consensual sexual behavior with partners. He found himself ultimately rebuked by more age-appropriate conquests, like his friend and eventual target David Madsen, a Minnesota architect and all-American golden boy who briefly dated Cunanan in San Francisco in 1995. However, Madsen began to distance himself after being turned off by Cunanan's strange behavior and unusual disappearances. Cunanan's conduct turned off plenty of his other intimates as well, including Jeffrey Trail, a U.S. naval officer turned propane retailer whom Cunanan considered himself so close to that he referred to him as a brother, until Trail too took his leave. Perhaps all of this can help make some sense as to why, in April 1997, a cash-poor and likely strung-out Cunanan murdered Trail. Cunanan bludgeoned Trail's face in with a hammer while on an uninvited trip to Minneapolis, where Trail and Madsen both resided. Cunanan rolled up Trail's body in a rug and stored him in a closet inside Madsen's loft before vanishing with one of Trail's semi-automatic pistols. Upon discovery of the body, detectives believed Matson to be the prime suspect. But days later, Matson's body washed ashore on Rush Lake in Minnesota. He had been shot in the head multiple times. Cunanan then traveled to Chicago, where he found his third victim, Lee Miglin, an esteemed 72-year-old real estate developer whose son Duke, a then-emerging actor, was rumored to have befriended Cunanan in California. In May of that same year, Miglin's body was found underneath a car in a garage near Chicago's Magnificent Mile. Miglin had been tied and wrapped, his ribs broken, and his throat cut open. As the FBI officially placed him on their 10 most wanted list, 
Cunanan drove Miglin's stolen car to Pennsville, New Jersey, where, days later, he murdered a cemetery caretaker named William Reese, seemingly at random. He traded Miglin's vehicle for Reese's red Chevy pickup and embarked to the city that would become his final destination, Miami Beach. Cunanan was able to hide in plain sight for two months in Miami. He lived in a beachside residence hotel and regularly patronized a gay hustler bar where young studs doffed their clothes for older clientele. He even managed to pawn off a gold coin that he had taken from Miglin's house at a local pawn shop. The pawn shop, then after, sent a ticket with Cunanan's fingerprint to the police, which is required by law for pawn shops. And still, neither the police nor the FBI could catch him. On July 15th, Cunanan waited outside Versace's Miami residence. As Versace exited his home, Cunanan shot and killed him with Trail's pistol, mob style, before running off. Police responders were directed to a nearby garage where a witness had seen Cunanan changing out of clothes near a red truck. There, the police found Reese's Chevy, inside of which were Cunanan's clothes, a fake passport, and newspaper clippings about the crimes. Eight days later, the caretaker of a houseboat checked in on the unoccupied vessel and came into contact with Andrew Cunanan. He had been hiding there since Versace's murder. Upon discovery, Cunanan did the unexpected. He gave up, taking his own life by shooting himself in the head in an upstairs bedroom with Trail's pistol. No one can know for certain why Cunanan committed these murders, although that hasn't stopped people from simply creating explanations. The most popular of these is the long-standing story that Cunanan's trail of killings was a form of revenge for a recent discovery that he was HIV positive, a rumor that was both offensive and quickly debunked after his autopsy. But considering his mental condition and his numerous years of drug and alcohol abuse, it almost seems beside the point to demand one rational, all-encompassing motive for actions that were distinctly made with such warped logic. Like so many crimes of this nature, there can never be anything rational about Cunanan's state of mind, nor the unspeakable crimes that have left missing, irreplaceable links in the lives of the partners, friends, and families of Jeffrey Trail, David Madsen, Lee Miglin, William Reese, and Johnny Versace. Before I discuss the film I'd like to see about Andrew Cunanan, I want to note that, yes, he is reportedly a major character in Ryan Murphy's upcoming season three of American Crime Story, which should arrive sometime in 2018. First of all, this season is continually being framed by the media as the Versace murder season, with most articles devoted to the incredibly high possibility that Lady Gaga will play Donatella. However, in a recent panel at Entertainment Weekly's Pop Fest, Murphy clarified that the season will be a manhunt season that also explores the reasons of how Cunanan got away with being undetected. That being said, even after American Crime Story's amazing and genuinely eye-opening first season about O.J. Simpson, I still feel extremely dubious about Murphy handling characters of color, especially Asian ones, who are generally in short supply across his work. So during the panel at PopFest, Murphy failed to even mention that Cunanan was also gay, which is such an integral and interesting part of his story that it seems woefully disingenuous to diminish that fact, much less ignore it. I am also incredibly fearful of the seriously high likelihood that Murphy will just cast one of his standby hot male brunettes like Wes Bentley or Matt Bomer as Cunanan. There's actually an utterly idiotic GQ article that was recently up from Jake Wolf, um, in which Wolf dreamcast the season. Um, And in doing so, he suggested that the very much white actor 
Justin Long play Cunanan. Even worse, within the article, it placed Long's photo next to a photo of another white actor who played Cunanan in some straight-to-DVD movie about the murders, as opposed to Cunanan himself. It would be such a pity to see this role be whitewashed because, as we mentioned before, there is such a lack of um, complex um, Asian characters on screen, especially when, as soon as I heard this story, an actor who seems perfect for the role did come to mind, which is Conrad Rikamura, who is a lead on yes. How to Get Away with Murder, oh, yeah. and he's half Filipino and half white. Yeah. But I sincerely hope that, I don't know, I just feel, for some reason, like, this is nagging at me that there is genuinely going to be, like, a white actor playing Andrew Andrew Cunanan under the, maybe, like, the justification that he was half-white or something, or that he was able to appear Caucasian, which is bullshit. Cast a fucking Asian Ryan Murphy. Anyway, enough about the Murphy series for now. So, Cunanan is undeniably a controversial subject, and as with any and all true crime projects, one must always address the concern of why such a painful story ought to be dredged up again in the first place. I mean, I for one think there is so much to be studied and scrutinized in Cunanan's story, especially when it comes to the very common form of insecurity that many gay men battle in a culture that's as masculine-focused as it's ever been. I'm not saying that we should automatically sympathize with the murderer just because he lacked confidence, but then again, I hardly think that finding empathy for Cunanan should be an idea that's utterly out of the question. Are there any movies that you have in mind that you might consider a predecessor to this story? The movie I'm picturing is sort of a mix between Monster, which is Patty Jenkins's galvanizing and seriously underrated biopic about the serial killer Eileen Wernos, um, which won Charlie Theron an immensely deserved Oscar in 2003. Um, so a mix of that and American Psycho, since I feel like Patrick Bateman's mania and materialism are certainly in keeping with Andrew Cunanan's. Although I do say, I would say the film I envision um, would veer more towards a humane portrait than the sort of Guggenhall exhibit that Mary Harron really indelibly engineered in American Psycho. Is there a filmmaker you have in mind? I was thinking a lot about this, and the first one that came to me, and I think he would be perfect for this, is um, the indie writer-director Andrew Ahn, um, who I think would be just really perfect to handle this. So if you've been listening to this podcast um, since the beginning, you might remember that we gave one of our first shout outs at the end to An's really exquisite coming of age drama Spa Night, which won raves and also got a jury acting prize for its lead actor at this year's Sundance Film Festival. So Spa Night is An's feature film debut and within it he crafts this really intimately examined story about a young Korean man's sexual self-discovery. Um, And it's a movie that feels both frank and inscrutable, and it reckons with these really underexplored nuances of Asian masculinity and homosexuality uh, with rare and radical maturity without ever sputtering out or giving into like conventional storytelling demand. It's, I think, undoubtedly one of the year's best and most surprising films, and it gives me the confidence that Ahn would be one of the rare filmmakers to find something worthwhile in these horrific events that comprised Cunanan's confused life. I mean, it's really, his life is just like this endlessly fascinating interplay between all these ideas about race and class and sexuality and gender. And I just think it would be prime material for any storyteller. So for my Oscar clip, I've written an imagined conversation between Andrew and a fictitious friend who is inquiring about Andrew's relationship with his sugar daddy, Norman Blatchford. I will be playing Andrew and Melissa will be playing the friend. 
Come on, Andrew. Norman is old enough to be your father. Actually, I think he's old enough to be your grandfather. Well, good thing he has me around to help him safely cross the street. No, I'm calling bullshit on this one. What do you even see in him? Is dollar signs too crass a response for you? Yeah, but he's fucking elderly. Of course he's fucking elderly. That's the only way I can afford him. I know it, and, you know, deep down he knows it, too. But who am I to complain? Did you know that last week he pushed me onto a plane and flew me all the way to New York on a whim? We had dinner at Bouli's, this fabulous French restaurant where every man has to wear a jacket. Well, because Norman just threw me on the plane, I naturally didn't have one on me. Do you know what he did? He slipped a busboy a fistful of $100 bills and told him to fetch one of my size from Prada or Saks. The boy came back with this dark blue number from Prada. It pinched my shoulders, but it did wonders for my silhouette, and we went on to enjoy the wild Alaskan salmon. After that, he took me to see Sunset Boulevard with Glenn Close, who was in rare form. Truly, she's as divine as she's ever been, and in such an iconic part, no less. So he's your benefactor. What are you to him, Andrew? Oh, honey, I'm the body. Asian Oscar Bait is hosted by Matthew Wang and Melissa Powers, produced by Caroline Pinto, with music by Rena Minigishi and marketing by Alina Heim. Come say hi at Asian Oscar Bait on Twitter or at www.asianoscarbait.com, where we'll be listing our sources for these histories. Before we sign off, we wanted to shout out the indie thriller Equity, the second feature from Indian-American director Mira Manan, and the first Wall Street film driven entirely by fierce and fully realized female characters, all of whom have been freed from stereotypical wife or girlfriend functions in this movie. 